0: The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Recovery, the Hero's Journey. Your host is Dr. Patricia Halligan. If addiction or prescription drug dependence affects you, directly or indirectly, whether it's you, a family member, or a close friend, stay tuned over the next hour as we explore substance use disorders, process addictions, and prescription drug dependence. We'll be discussing the painful reality behind these disorders and what can be done to help. Now, here is Dr. Patricia Halligan.
1: Hi, welcome to Recovery, The Hero's Journey. I'm Patricia Halligan, and today we're doing something different. We're talking to one of my favorite authors, Eileen Zimmerman. Her powerful, heartbreaking memoir entitled Smacked, a story of white-collar ambition, addiction, and tragedy is one of my all-time favorites. Eileen Zimmerman is a journalist and a social worker, For 30 years, she has written about business, technology, and social issues for a wide variety of national magazines and newspapers. Eileen was a columnist for the New York Times for eight years, and since 2004, has been a regular contributor to the newspaper. Eileen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I tell you, I've never read a book or seen a movie that better portrayed the devastation and the impact that addiction has on the family as a whole. Uh, I, I cried my, my way through your book and found it oh, very, <laughs> well, very. Thank you.
2: That's a compliment. Thank
1: you. It's, it's a compliment. It's so powerful. Thank and you. I, I wonder if you would do us the honor of reading something from your book.
2: Yes, and I didn't put it in a great place. So I'm just going to grab it. Okay. <laughs> and and <laughs> I'm, I'm going to... It.
1: Oh, yes. Show it one more time. I have it. It's Smacked. The Story Wonderful. of
2: One-Collar Ambition, Addiction, and Tragedy. Thank you. And I'm going to read um, just a few pages from the prologue, um, which is when I am getting up to my ex-husband Peter's house, and I, um, and I, I find the scene as it is. July 11th, 2015. I plug in the code to the gate at Peter's house and the door swings open to an expansive rectangular backyard. The grass is mostly brown, the $20,000 fountain in the center no longer burbling, it's white stones covered in algae. I go to the front door and put my key in the lock. It's made of heavy glass and makes a whooshing sound as it opens, like the door to an office building. There's a staircase immediately in front of me that leads to the main floor and to my right is the only room downstairs. It was intended to be a family or rec room and has a glass wall facing the yard. I always thought it would be a great place for a party. Now it's been converted to a bedroom for our daughter, Anna, who is home from college for the summer. She stays here at her dad's house a few nights a week. Down here, she has more independence as well as her own bathroom. The bed is unmade, clothes and a bath towel litter the floor. Anna hasn't been here in two days. Neither has our son, Evan. I call out, Peter? No answer, no sound from upstairs. Peter, are you here? I climb the stairs to the main floor. It's perfectly quiet and still. I take a minute to look around. The house is an architectural trophy made of steel, wood, and glass, all sharp angles and sunlight. Through the windows, I can just make out a white line of sea foam hitting the beach. I turn toward the kitchen. On the counter, immediately to my right, there is a large, nearly empty takeout soda the kind you get at a convenience store, some candy wrappers, piles of work papers, an asthma inhalator. Peter has been sick for more than a year with some kind of ongoing low-grade flu, constantly exhausted and weak. He's lost 30 pounds, maybe more, since we split up five years ago. But in the last six months, it's gotten worse. My kids say he sleeps the whole weekend when they are here, forgets to grocery shop, never makes meals. He doesn't seem to be going into the office much. The last time Anna and Evan were here, Two days ago, their dad could barely lift his head off the pillow. Evan tried to take him to the hospital, but Peter refused, got angry, and snapped at him. Then he vomited it onto the bedroom floor and threw a washcloth over it and went back to bed. No one has been able to reach Peter since Thursday morning. I have come here to check on him, to make sure he's okay, and take care of him if he isn't. I turn down the hallway where the bedrooms are located. Peter, I call again. Peter, I'm coming down the hall to your bedroom, okay? His bedroom is at the end of the hallway. Its door faces me and it's open, but I can't see anything except a corner of the bed and a cluttered night table. I walk past my son's bedroom with its one orange wall and Ikea bed, past Anna's old bedroom, one wall painted deep pink and another wallpapered in a fl- forest of black trees with little blackbirds resting on branches. Someone has cut out a silhouette of a rat and pasted it onto a branch. I am nearly at his door and start calling his name again in earnest. Peter? Peter? Peter, I can see into the room. Peter, I'm coming into the room. I'm here to check on you. The covers on his bed are drawn back and I can see the crumpled white sheets. There are a few tissues in the bed with spots of blood on them. I'm starting to shake badly as I walk into the bedroom. Peter isn't in the bed, so I turn toward the master bath. There I see him lying face up on the floor between the bathroom and the bedroom. I stand there unable to really understand what I'm seeing. My mind is struggling to comprehend this. That's him? What's that on his face? There's a cardboard box under his head like a pillow. I walk over and kneel down next to him. His right arm is bent at the elbow and resting on his chest, a gesture he often makes, even when he is standing up. He holds his arm that way when he is making a point, pressing his thumb and first two fingers together for emphasis. Our son does the same thing. I touch Peter's arms to shake him awake. They are stiff and hard to move. His fingernails are blue. I put my hand on his chest to try and feel his heart. I suddenly remember lying in our bed when we were married, spooning my chest up against his back, especially when I was cold or couldn't sleep. I would listen for his heartbeat, so much slower and stronger than mine, and feel safe. Now I feel nothing.
1: Thank you for that, Eileen. You're welcome. Uh, there, wow, when I read that and I listened to you read it again, I feel like I've been sucker punched. It felt like that writing it. (laughs) I wonder, I wonder, can you tell me about the word smacked? Yes, I will say
2: that wasn't my first choice for the title, but I think it was hard for the publishers to come up with something that would sort of sum up how we, how it felt. And I think this was kind of a play on the slang smack, which is a slang for heroin, Um, which is not what Peter was taking, but it's an opioid, um, an opiate. But it was more that the way that we were all, me, his kids, his colleagues, his friends sort of smacked in the face with what happened and kind of shattered from it. That, you know, it was something completely unexpected, the way a smack often is, and just kind of wakes you up. So I think that was the idea behind using the word in the title.
1: You know, it's funny, you use the word shattered, and that was the That was the word that came to my mind too you know there's a song by oar called shattered and one of the lyrics is how many times can i break till i shatter and i was thinking about this this feeling that you you portray brilliantly and it's so honest and it's this when you say in this uh reading i can't comprehend i can't comprehend i can't comprehend yeah. I'm trying to wrap my mind around this. i I don't get it. I don't understand. I wonder how many years you and the kids lived in that state of mental disorganization and confusion? That's
2: it. Well, and we definitely did live in that state for a period of time. I don't know how long certainly peter he was injecting at at that point, but he, he i don't I can't imagine he was injecting for years simply because I think he would have died sooner he wound up dying from an infection. That was real. He was, he was also very sick from drug dependence, but he also had a sepsis, um, which is when bacteria gets in endocarditis through those little holes, the injection holes. But I do think he probably was using like snorting cocaine and things like that. um, And probably taking Percocets and um, Vicodin when we were together. And I just was not savvy enough or aware of it, or I was in denial or, or, just not educated, I suppose, or ignorant of what could be happening. But the part where he became a really big mess and hard to live with was about 18 months. So for sure, we, we lived then thinking it was everything else, you know, we, he, we would readily think, well, maybe as an eating disorder, you know, which <clears throat> was so unlikely, whereas drug abuse was so likely, <laughs> but, you know, we didn't, didn't acknowledge that.
1: Now, if you look back in time, what signs did you miss that this was an addiction? And what signs did his colleagues miss? I think he had a lot of the
2: classic signs. I don't know that I would have seen them. Like my son, for instance, saw him nodding, which is where people that are opioid addicts are kind of falling asleep while they sit up. And so at one point, my son said his dad was reading the mail and he just fell asleep and I was thinking, oh my gosh, he's so exhausted from working, he can't even stay up to read the mail, not realizing that's actually has a name, nodding, and is a symptom of opiate abuse. Did not know. Right. And I really didn't know. So, and he he had very disorganized thinking. He couldn't finish any task. He forgot things all the time, things he said, things he had committed to, what he was supposed to do. He forgot where he was going. He we all decided to have Thanksgiving dinner together the November he died about, uh, I guess eight months later or seven, but that November Thanksgiving, um, we had decided we would have it at a restaurant because I didn't want to have it at my house and I didn't want to go to his. Um, I just said, let's just, there was just too much baggage emotionally being divorced. Mm -hmm. So we met at this really nice restaurant. It was supposed to kind of be a big treat. And he was 30 minutes late and he texted and he said, I did, I, I did, you know, I, I got lost. And I said, The restaurant was Mr. A's in San Diego. It's a very well-known like French restaurant. And I said, there's only one Mr. A's and I sent you the address. And he was like, well, what do you want from me? I got lost. And like at that point, instead of thinking like, here's a sign of somebody that's using, I just thought maybe he has a cognitive disorder. Maybe there's like, I I remember Googling memory loss in middle-aged men to see if
1: this was a thing. You know, so you, yeah, you had that. no point of reference, right? You had never, you had never yeah. loved a person with an addiction. You didn't grow up in a house where there was an addiction and it was That's talked right. about. Correct. So That's you're right. No point of reference, and throughout the whole book, all the um, lateness uh, that he was down. So much lateness, yeah. Right, and and
2: no shows too, right? And and so I mean he was lying to his colleagues. He was lying to us. He would just one lie upon the next. And he, as a lawyer, he was very convincing. He was good at what he did. And so you would doubt yourself. I I think I have this. I know I have this in the book. At one point, he was like two hours late to pick up our son from high school. And he was 25 minutes away. And he said that there was a big accident. And I was checking traffic. And I was like, I said to him, there's no, ac- there's no traffic. And he said, what can I tell you? There is. And I thought, well, it must be Sigalert. <laughs> it must be the, the computer program they use to track traffic. It couldn't be Peter. Why would he lie? Why would he be two hours late for a son?
1: It was unfathomable, right? Because he used to be reliable.
2: He, yeah. I mean, he, he could be late, but not, not hours late, right? I mean, he was self-important late, but not this kind of late. And he, he, um, he screwed up at work and was telling me about it, and I have the example in the book, and it was something that was so out of character for him. He had, he had let this this big filing was happening late at night for a court, and he let his team do it, and he wasn't there. But it was very very important, and he never would have not been there for it to supervise it and make sure. But but he said, yeah, you know, it was all done. They all they needed to do was hit send. And I, I found out after he died that was not it at all. And. And so even at work, his his performance was slipping and it was clear that he wasn't as conscientious, that he was late all the time. He was forgetting stuff. His secretary was, you know, was pulling her hair out, trying to get him to commit to things and show up for meetings. And when he died, I saw all of her, her texts and emails to him like, you know, Peter, they're on the call. Peter, are you going to join the call? They can't wait anymore, you know? And it's like, but all of us, these signs were happening and all of us could, couldn't put two and two together or didn't chose not to put two and two together. And
1: it's it's also tra- um, very traumatic. Like I remember Eileen, the one scene that kind of stopped my heart was you, I think, and your son, Evan and uh, Peter were going to drop Anna at college, your oldest child. Yeah. And you were waiting. It was seven in the morning and he was half an hour late to take you guys uh. to the airport. And um, Anna is frustrated she's crying and crying yeah oh it was so stressful <laughs> right because he was it, it was like we have
2: 10 suitcases we have to get onto check and she's going to college for the first time right and he like slit you could hear the tires screeching around the corner to get to us and it was like why the dramatic entrance couldn't you just have left 45 minutes earlier <laughs> you know right. but he was like no big deal you know i'm here Right. And so I sort of felt gaslit. Like, am I a nervous Nelly? Am I always a worry wart? Maybe I should be more relaxed. But no,
1: no, it was a really stressful way to live. Yeah. Well, that's part of the problem, right, with the gaslighting. So you take this drive to the airport and he's driving 85 miles an hour oh, through right. city streets. And you know, your your son's got his eyes closed in the back seat. And, you know, you, you're hanging on for dear life and you and your daughter are nauseated and he screeches up to the front of the, well, I guess the ballet parking and pays arm and a leg for parking. To ballet park. Right. And and you say, I'm never riding with you again. And he sneers at you and, and judges you and mocks you. Yes. He laughed like, right. You're never going to drive with me again.
2: Right. And he was sort of like, why not? He said, we're here, aren't we? Right. You know, he could afford valet parking, so no harm done. You know, and, and all of a sudden, you're the nag, you're the bitch. Exactly. I'm like yes. it was the same thing with Thanksgiving. I said I I questioned him and said he was he had he was supposed to have dinner at um or he was going to have dinner with friends, but it turned out like this friend had to work or that she worked at a hospital, and so we I said, all right, well, we'll all have dinner together. And then that morning, he said, well, sh- you know, she's it, she's off today, and I said, you you said that's the reason you didn't have a place to go. And he would just be like, he said, can we not talk about this now? And he was looking at the menu with my daughter and I went into the bathroom and started crying. Cause I was like, what is going on with this guy? Yes. Like, I would think like, did I hear him wrong? Did he not, right. you know? Right. right. So it's
1: all of that kind of feeling really gaslit all the time. And and people with an addiction that they're trying to keep secret, they're experts uh, at uh, lying, at uh, changing the truth, at taking their own shame and shifting it to you so that all of a sudden- Oh, you he feel, was great at that. Yeah. Right. And, and also he's a high powered attorney. And so his verbal skills, debating skills and mind manipulation skills are already professionally you know, top shelf. So yeah, very you, good. He knew how to bully somebody. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, people with addiction, I always think that they would make great lawyers because they're great at making you question your own sanity.
2: Exactly. Right. I think there's that there's that joke, you know, how do you know? I mean, And we don't like to use the word addict, but more person with an addiction. But this joke says, like, how do you know if an addict is lying? Their lips are moving. And yes. it really it became true. Like everything he did was a lie.
1: Yeah. Yes. This is what's not talked about and not written about and not given enough airtime is the pain of the family members. Sure, uh, we're compassionate toward them and yes, we love them, but I think this part gets neglected. There's um, a saying that uh, our minds exist in relation to other minds. So if your world involves someone with an act of addiction, mm-hmm. you are basically being induced to feel what they feel. So you're induced into their experience of craziness, loss of control. And, uh, it's, it's a hundred percent bizarre. There's no logic. It's irrational, uh, yeah. and it's very urgent and desperate. So when we ask ourselves, well, why didn't we know better? Why didn't we know better? Number one, I think the feelings of the person with the addiction, are being induced in us. So we feel the denial they feel and we feel the desperation they feel and the out of control, irrational sense that their world takes shape. And also it's traumatic. And I think when there's trauma, like you give so many traumatic examples through the book and you quote Bessel van der Kolk uh, also, and his book, Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score, right, yeah. And what he says is so true about trauma there are no words for it because it's just not in our realm. So until we go through therapy or do EMDR, we just don't, we can't really understand it. So you live in this this world where, you know, you just don't know what's going on. It's very painful, isn't it? It is because you're
2: living in the middle of it. You don't have any time to step back and think, oh, I know what this is. This is because it's so hard. You know, at the time you're just thinking, you know, what's wrong with me that I can't, none of this makes sense. Or he'd like, he would text my son and say, like, can I call you in 10 minutes to say good night? And my son would like, wait. And two hours later, he'd be like, dad, dad, nothing. And I'd say, well, <laughs> you know, and I wasn't thinking, oh, he's out buying drugs. I just thought like, how selfish, how inconsiderate, like, what is he doing that he can't call his son? But, you know, it wasn't until after he passed away that I thought, oh, he was really sick, you know, he. but yeah, but at the time we just felt, he felt like a narcissist and, you know, we felt really neglected.
1: Yeah. Yes. And I think some of the, uh, uh, problem is that you get so emotionally dysregulated on behalf of your children. Like you're an outstandingly attuned mother. Aww. And the one thing that came, uh, through these pages was your sadness that Evan didn't have a father toward the end of Peter's addiction. So yeah. you were, you weren't able to mentate around, uh, watching and feeling your son's disappointment. It's so devastating. And then you feel so sad and And so um, uh, confused as to what's happening that it's really hard to figure out. You know what on earth is going on? Exactly.
2: Um, Well said. Yeah, you don't know when you and the person I was then. I I would often like blame myself. Like I must not be. Maybe I said the wrong thing. I'm not sensitive enough. I'm not understanding how hard you know Peter's working and he's just exhausted. You know because he would often use that as the. I mean, I think he was working and exhausted for a long time before he was using. Yes. And then I think that became the excuse for everything. I'm in a meeting. I kept my phones in the meeting. I had to go to a client, you know, whatever it was. Right.
1: Right. I think um, now tell me a little bit about the book and what was the motivation behind it, behind writing it? What caused you to write this book? So uh,
2: after Peter died and I started to unravel what happened to him, I, I was, I'm a journalist and um I started looking into it. I tried to figure out who were his dealers because I was like, "What's going on in at the time in San Diego?" I'm like, "His dealers are married and have kids and family." I was like, "Who are these people?" You know, it didn't. It wasn't the seedy underworld I imagined. And um, and then the more research I did and kind of following the trail of drugs and money and what he was doing, um, it kind of led to this feeling that maybe other people in the profession, or it seemed like a lot of professionals like him were involved in this world. And then about six months after he died, uh, the Hazelden Betty Ford um, Institute and um, the American Bar Association did a study of lawyer well-being. And they found that lawyers have a, a high rate of alcoholism. They drink a lot and there was some drug use. But the interesting thing in the study was that 75% of lawyers just skipped over the questions on drug use. And so when I learned that, because I had contacted the study's author, I thought, you know, I think there's a story here. So I started writing it and researching it, and I started to research what was going on in the legal profession, since I wanted to be narrow, and um, worked with Patrick Krill, who was the lead investigator on that ABA Hazelden study. And he said, I, I think the lawyers didn't answer it, because he said, I think they're using. He said, I just think they're not going to answer it. They're afraid. Right. And so I wound up writing a story in 2017 for the New York Times called The Lawyer, The Addict. And it was in the Sunday business section. You know, I thought it would do okay, because people like stories about lawyers, I think, I think they don't like lawyers. They like critical stories of, and it got 2 million shares. It just blew up. Like I, I couldn't believe it. And I started to get some emails from people saying that they'd had personal experiences with someone in their life that had been using someone who died, a son, a daughter or husband, and a lot of really deeply personal and sad notes. And, um, I thought at that point, you know, maybe there's maybe there's a book here. Maybe, maybe I should tell the whole story of our family because I felt much less alone when people had reached out to me and said, this happened to me with my husband and I'm going through the same thing. It was such a
1: relief. So it made me I'm think- I'm not maybe, the only one.
2: I'm not the only one. It made me think, you know, maybe there's a good reason for us to share our story. And my kids and I had already decided sharing it in the times might help people. And I felt like a book might do more of that. And because it had gotten so much traction, it was a good time- And I had an agent at the time I had been thinking about writing a memoir. And so we sold it and I did write it. Yeah. And then unfortunately it came out about a month before the global pandemic, but Mm. (laughs) but I did write it. Yeah.
1: Well, what do you, what did you find in all your research? Uh, What did you make of the fact that lawyers, attorneys and judges are um, at an increased risk for mental health problems and for substance use disorders? What do you think is behind that?
2: Well, some of it I learned was the mindset of someone that becomes a lawyer and ultimately a judge or whatever is um, is this negativity mindset, which is very unhealthy in, in almost every profession except for law. The research shows that if you have a ne- negativity mindset in the law, it is beneficial for your profession. It is linked to unhappiness, heart disease, substance use, you know all kinds of negative health outcomes. But professionally, because you're always scanning the horizon for what could go wrong, that's what a lawyer generally does. Um, and I think that negativity mindset also tends to attract people that are sort of glass half empty or they're suspect of things. And um, that can lead to kind of a quote unquote self-medicating with alcohol and painkillers and cocaine or Adderall, everything, to stay up, to work long hours. I think it's kind of a perfect storm. This is like a lot of negativity and then a very punishing profession with very long hours, hyper-competitive, you know, the the brass ring or the, you know, the big prize is a partnership and there are less equity partnerships than ever now. So you're, you have an increasing number of people battling for a small number of prizes, let's say. And um, and I mean, you can make a lot of money in law, no corporate law, no question, but it's, it's a big sacrifice. I mean, you, you will work 60 to 80 hours a week. And it's just a punishing profession. And I think the unrelenting stress of that gets to a lot of people in it the same way it does perhaps in medicine. And I found it in finance too, but in law, especially, I think you combine that with this kind of negative bias and also this reticence on the profession, although it's, it's changed to talk about mental health. I mean, I remember saying to Peter once, you should go see somebody, you should go talk to someone. And he said, never, it would be a sign of weakness. If anyone were to find out in his firm that he were seeing a therapist, I mean, and he had, you know, for what it's worth friends there that he'd worked with 10, 12 years, and he felt like he could never confide in that he'd been feeling really down.
1: Well, you know, that's uh, interesting. The one thing I think that makes law different than medicine is in medicine, we're cooperative and we tend to work as members of a team. Whereas yeah, what that's you're saying. Right. Yeah. With with attorneys, um, I think they're uh, uh, being criticized by judges. Uh, it's very antagonistic. Uh, they're yeah. looking to be uh, defeated by, uh, you know, opposing uh, counsel, right. opposing counsel for sure. And they're
2: also competing with doctors. I had a I had a guy in my New York Times story who was had been a he had prosecuted sex crimes. And he said, you know. Being a lawyer, it's not like with a surgeon, you know, you're working as part of a team. He said being a lawyer is like you have just like sewn someone up and there's a guy across from you who's going to undo your stitches. You know, you're just so because even in the same firm, each partner in that firm has to have a book of business. And so they're all kind of competing against each other for different Clients and matters and companies and so you are friends and colleagues, but you're also competing.
1: Absolutely. You, very you different. know, Eileen, yeah. I have three lawyers that I'm treating from the same firm. Oh my gosh. Uh, and they don't That's know wild. they don't know that I'm their therapist, their uh, individual therapist. Is it for a corporate and them. it's a
2: corporate law firm or yes.
1: Yeah. yes, very prestigious. And I'm also treating a woman from a different law firm and She's wow. so overworked and she finds that her clients are so angry. Uh, it, they're so um, people that she's dealing with, they're paying her such a huge hourly rate that they feel entitled to be able to contact her at night, text her on her personal cell phone, and at weekends. So it, it, there's no private time, there's no boundaries. That's actually know.
2: yeah. That's I did. I interviewed a lot of attorneys, and I did a story for the Guardian during the pandemic on lawyers and other professionals and their uses was in was increasing. And that's exactly right. It's this feeling that if you're going to charge a client six or seven hundred dollars an hour for an attorney's time, they want that attorney to be available at their beck and call. And yes, and the attorney understands that, but at the same time, these are not robots. I mean, they need to have. And you're right. And and a lot of the younger lawyers that. I talked to for the book, said that the phone had really changed everything. Because when Peter was coming up, even the iPhone came out in 2007, Peter had finished law school before then. Right. So you would get a break getting home. You could, Truly. you know, someone might call on the house phone, but or, or they might even call you on your cell, but it wasn't quite as common. Now, you know, there's, there's, I mean, I remember at the end of our marriage, Peter would put the phone next to the bed in case someone from China or he
1: had someone in Switzerland, he had clients in Switzerland that might be calling him and he had to get it. So, you have to disconnect from your own uh, personal life, who you are as a person, and what you need uh, exercise, right. and a good night's sleep, and healthy relationships. Right. Right. Fun. So Fun time with your kids or friends, right? There was nothing.
2: We never took a vacation, hardly ever took vacations as a family.
1: I believe it. I always say to my clients who are attorneys, uh, deprivation breeds entitlement. So that if I'm working and if I'm a workaholic and there's no downtime and I'm working until 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, if I get home, I'm entitled to a drink or a drug. Me time, that's how I would escape because everybody's taking from me all day, every day. That's such a... That's a great phrase. I wish I'd interviewed you for the book. In fact, when we
2: divorced and Peter, I think started using much more heavily after, because I'm not a, I I wouldn't have obviously tolerated it. That would have been the end for us, Um, but Um, when we were splitting up, he said, it's my turn now. He kept saying like, it's my turn now. So I think he saw us splitting up as his chance to like, get what he deserved. Right. And it was because he was working so hard. He really felt like now I get to have what I want. And if what I want is to get high, that's what I'm going to do.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I think uh, with people who are uh, attorneys, they don't have the experience of relying on a friend or a therapist to feed them emotionally. So they get fed, they get nurtured, they get soothed by the drugs or the drink. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like well, a lot of people with addictions have an intimacy disorder. So oh, I didn't realize that. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, well, we call addictions an attachment disorder or an intimacy disorder. So they don't know how to be vulnerable with somebody else. They don't know how to uh, be soothed by somebody else. They don't know anything about co-regulation. So or, or feeling um, soothed in connection to somebody else, uh, probably either due to their own brain wiring as a child, or due to a parent's um, inability to wow. protect them, to soothe them, to be attuned to them. That's why I say to you, you've done such a great job uh, being attuned wow. to your children because you know who they are and you know what they feel, and you're 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 there. Um, watching and waiting uh, un- until they need you y- yeah. y- you you are their secure base and my hunch is your husband either didn't have that uh, didn't know how to be soothed and connected to another person on an intimate level so it was always something that was you know soothing him you know
2: that's really that's very astute yeah and I could totally see that I think self-soothing is something a lot of people seem to have trouble with you know that's Absolutely. why they shop too much or eat too much or whatever yeah, right totally and I mean it It's interesting. I didn't realize
1: it's almost always an attachment thing. Yeah. Whether it's sure, whether it's a pornography addiction or an eating disorder, uh, whether it's alcohol or drug problem. Now, um, what do you think the American Bar Association and uh, law firms could do? Uh, to help increase awareness of the increased risk of mental health problems, like depression, is big. Uh, suicide is an increased risk among attorneys, also, and certainly alcohol and drug problems, uh, very high up on the list among attorneys. What can the American Bar Association do and law firms do, do you think, to protect their attorneys? And anxiety, too, I should add, is huge. I think there I that I think. I think
2: certainly before the piece in the Times, I will say there's been very few times in my life as a journalist where peace had a big effect in a real way. But I think that piece combined with the Hazelton study made it was this moment for the legal profession to take a look at themselves, and, and from that they developed this well-being pledge that I think now has 200 signatories on it. You know, this this pledge to take lawyer mental health and well-being and substance use really seriously. And so I think there, I think the American Bar Association is urging its members to try to lessen and get rid of ultimately the stigma that going to seek help for mental health issues is a a weakness or a vulnerability, which a lawyer never wants to put put out there, but is the fact of, you know, I think the younger generations of lawyers, certainly Gen Z, but even younger millennials feel that it's a mental health is, you know, they have a right to good mental health and they're much more apt to seek help. I can say that a, a lot of firms, Uh, many firms have switched things like um, summer associates when they would hire summer law students, like the top cream of the crop, because they're kind of grooming them to give them offers. It used to be like a booze fest the whole summer. It was just, you know, drinking and also lots of cocaine and, and just party, party, party. And in the last five years, a lot of firms have made, you know, kind of more event driven, um, activities in the summer, certainly before the pandemic, that did not involve a lot of alcohol and that were much more like canoeing or bowling or something where there wasn't a lot of team building but not a lot of drinking and trying to make alcohol much less prominent at events. Um, and And some firms that have the resources are actually contracting with mental health providers that are outside of the firm so that lawyers know that the firm will not know but that it will be It's free and confidential and they they can go seek help if they feel that they need it. I think some senior members of some firms have have also been speaking more candidly about their own struggles so that younger attorneys feel like, okay, if, you know, so-and-so who's at the top of the food chain here is admitting that he had a problem with drinking or that he had a problem for a while with painkillers or cannabis or whatever it is, you know, maybe I should talk to someone about this. And so I think there is this slow... Reckoning that the profession is having, trying to well, at least they're they're paying lip service to it. Whether or not in reality it's happening, I think remains to be seen. But they are certainly paying lip service to the fact that their lawyers' mental health and well being is very important to them and to their firms. So I think that's a start.
1: I think you made a big impact, and I think it's such an important discussion to have. And and also I've, I've heard you say um, make them take their vacation, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, and teach them boundaries. I think everybody who graduates from med school and law school, we should take a course in setting boundaries. No, I don't work after seven yeah, o'clock at awesome, night. Awesome, um, right. You no, you can't have access to my personal cell phone. Uh, and I only work one weekend per month. Uh, if, if you send pro- me, yeah.
2: The problem is that that if you're working for a big, if you're working for a smaller firm or yourself, you can do it. But with a big firm, if you say I'm not working Sundays. Your colleague who doesn't have kids, let's say maybe like, well, she may be like, well, I'm going to work Sundays and then she's going to bill more hours and she's going to move up the food. Mm. So it's, I, I almost feel like you need the firm leadership to say we're as a firm, you know we're not taking client calls on Sundays or and that's a tough thing to do because that's directly tied into the bottom line
1: so i think that's a that's- great suggestion so take charge firm get the alcohol out <laughs> of the out of the desk drawers every lawyer that i have ever treated in my individual really? private practice they have they have alcohol in their offices this is such a big part of the culture so this is exciting and i love what you've brought to the table now if if i were to ask you the biggest feeling that was difficult to deal with after Peter's death or the thing that was the most difficult for you and the kids to deal with, what would you say the hardest thing after he died, the hardest thing about Peter's death? I think the hardest thing
2: for for myself and I think for my kids was the fact that he it was the betrayal it's funny <laughs> in a way it was the same thing with the end of our marriage peter had an affair and our marriage was in trouble but that hurt it didn't hurt yes. i could take that people fall in love with other people i understand that but it was the lying that felt like I was like, it's me, come on, you couldn't tell me, you know, and it felt the same with this. It just felt like a slap in the face. Like after he died, it was like, oh my gosh, for a year and a half, he's been lying about everything. You know, there were needles in his desk at work. I mean, he was lying. Such a betrayal, right? It felt like, and in fact, after he passed away, my son and I, especially since My son had been home that whole year. My daughter was at college, so he really got the worst of it, and then me the second, because he saw Peter, and he saw the craziness, and then I was trying to manage it, but we kind of made a deal between us that we would not lie, even if things were really hard to say to the other person, and we thought it would protect them. In those first couple of years after Peter passed away, we just kind of made this pact that no matter what, we would tell each other the truth.
0: Oh,
1: that's wonderful.
2: yeah. I mean, sometimes it was hard, especially as I was settling Peter's estate and finding drugs at the house and learning new things. You know, my son would just be like, just tell just tell me I did, you know,
1: and and I felt like he was owed the truth for a while because we've all been so lied to. And what went into your decision to tell the kids uh, that their dad had died of a, um, it was drugs involved. He was addicted to drugs. Um Yeah, how did that? It was at the house
2: the day that I found his body. My kids came up and I had to tell them, you know, he died and that was awful. And they were in shock and freaking out. And I had talked to the medical examiner there and said, Should I tell them? And I kept thinking about what a relief it was when I, I mean, it was a shock. I was like, Of course it was drugs. Like, I was like, What kind of an idiot are you? But it was also such a relief because I was like, Okay, there was nothing I could do because I was blaming myself like I should have come 2 days earlier, I could have gotten him to the hospital, but you know, I didn't at the point know how sick he was and I was thinking and my son was thinking I should have dragged him to the ER, we could have saved him. So a lot of guilt, a lot of guilt and I thought, yeah. you know, this will help us. The truth is a good thing, I think, you know, like and yes. so it felt really obvious that we should tell them and and then after I did, I could see them visi- visibly physically relieved physically and emotionally like okay it's not my fault i couldn't have helped and also understanding our collective ignorance like oh gosh you know of course nothing made sense but now it does you know so i i felt like it was i couldn't imagine lying to them
1: (laughs) after all the lying it just felt like how can i continue to lie Oh, I I think it's so wonderful. I think even the affair, we can explain away with an intimacy disorder. Wow, I hadn't thought, and you know, yeah, he Mm -hmm. didn't have, he had
2: relationships, but certainly not successful ones. And I used to think there was so much dishonesty in them. At one point, he was seeing someone who he found out that she was looking to date other men, um, like, uh, uh, I don't know what app she was using, but he saw this as many years ago, but she was, maybe she was on Match, And so I said to him, well, maybe you should just talk to her. He goes, no, I'm just going to date. Screw
1: it, you know. And I just thought, oh, this is really good. (laughs) I just thought this is so unhealthy, you know. But it's interesting. If you are not at peace with yourself and you don't have a a strong connection to yourself, you might get tired of the person that you're with, but you're not tired of them. You're needing newness. It's your it's your own inner emptiness you're getting connected to after you've been married to somebody for a long time. These are people with who are lacking a real solid sense of self. And so that, I guess, does I, it's interesting. I guess that's lack of self. Do you think it leads
2: to people to just put up walls? Like they don't want anyone to try to find it? They're,
1: well, if he feels like an imposter, if he's built a house of cards, uh, that is the how many million, a $20 million home? No, or it was a, It was a $20,000 fountain he had, but he had fountain. a $2 million home. Yeah. Well, that's still, that's still Might as well have been 20 million <laughs> to me compared to my house. It was gorgeous. Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, and the fast cars and the yeah. prestigious law firm in Silicon Valley and mm-hmm. you know, he had, uh, yeah, he had all the trappings of a house of cards, but on the inside, if you don't have a strong sense of self and you've got an intimacy disorder and an attachment disorder after a while, when, when you are with somebody for a long time, you, and the newness wears off, this person gets in touch with their own inner emptiness, and then they search to find something new and somebody who can reflect in. So when he looks at the new girl's eyes, Mm -hmm. he looks into her eyes, he's not seeing her. He's looking Mm -hmm. at somebody who is adoring him and admiring him and doesn't, doesn't get mad at him when he's, you know, two hours late or when he says, when he says to uh, a child, I'll pick you up at, uh, you know, five 30 and the kid's sitting on the curb and it's dark and all the other kids have gone home. So mm-hmm. of course, as the mom, you're going to get mad at him. So he wants somebody not to be disappointed in him, not to be mad at him. So he's going to look for somebody else. So this is something yeah. that's a really, I wish we I wish we'd gone to you. <laughs> I mean, I will say
2: he even had said something like, you know, I just want to be with someone who's not nagging me. And I was thinking like, who else do you treat like this though? Like,
1: you exactly. Know, right? but you get blamed. So this is the pain of the family members and whether you're the parent of the person struggling with an addiction mm-hmm. or, or whether you're the, uh, the spouse, whether it's the husband, the wife, the ex-wife, the uh, child, the right. child, if you challenge them, uh, I mean, it's, if you ever challenge them, if you criticize them, Uh, Be prepared to face the wrath, and they will they will shift the shame and dump it all over your head and make you feel this big and make you doubt your own sanity. Um, Exactly. This is the pain, Eileen, that you just you painted a picture of it, and and you were so. This was one of the most evocative books I think I've ever read. You did such a beautiful job. I. Yeah. I. I think I I was
2: still pretty raw when I wrote it, so that's why it was like hard, but a good thing. Cause I could feel everything very much at the surface. Yeah.
1: Yes. Well, they say in, uh, in the recovery world, uh, the only people who can't get better are the people who lack the capacity to be honest. And you've done such a searching and fearless, um, examination of yourself too. This yeah. is, this is not a pretty investigation, is it? No, and it's not, it's a messy, I wonder what heart. it was like, like, what was it like to write the memoir personally? It was very
2: healing and cathartic in a way, because it was, a, I think as a writer, that's how I process things that happened to me. So I was writing the whole time anyway, just kind of what was going on so I could remember it and kind of, like I said, sort of process, get through it. And writing the book helped me helped me also kind of understand the narrative to the whole thing and what happened. and. And think about my, myself. I write about myself and how i was I was really dependent on Peter for for everything. I mean, I was dependent on him financially in a big way, but right. emotionally too. I still wanted him to be proud of me or think I was a g- good person or a good mother. And you know, the whole time that I was feeling that way, I was also questioning, why is this important to me? why is why is this important to me? And when he died, I did, I faced this kind of existential crisis where I thought, what's the reason now? Cause I kept wanting to prove him wrong about me that I was really, I was going to be successful. I was going to be okay. Financially. I was a good mom. I, you know, I, I, don't think he doubted my mothering, but I think he's, I think he saw me as weak and vulnerable and things that aren't bad, but in his, the way he kind of portrayed, it was not, a, was not a good thing. It was not a way to be strong and successful, you know? Um, and then when he died, I didn't have that kind of barometer, that person
1: judging me. And I had to figure out, well, now, what, what are your reas- Now, what, how do you right. move forward
2: for yourself? Right,
1: right. How do, yeah. And so I wonder if you view this as a hero's journey and you are the protagonist here and you were called to action the day you walked in and found his body on, on the floor. On the floor, yeah. I wonder what the transformation has been because you certainly left what was known and what was comfortable and you ventured into a whole unknown world, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, For sure.
2: It was very uncomfortable. But I will say, I was so angry at Peter for leaving us and for being selfish. And, you know, even my kids now, you know, it's, it's very hard for them without him. And my son, especially, he doesn't have that kind of model in his life. You know, he even just recently, we were talking and he said, well, I, what I really need is I really need to ask dad about this. And I just said, mm-hmm. I know, and you can't. So we have to figure something else out. Um, you know, just just how to be show up as a man in the world. He doesn't really have that. And, um, you know, and my daughter certainly also lost a lot. You know, they were very adoring of each other. But I will say, I... Writing the book and the process of researching it and talking to professionals like you and other people, I have a great deal of compassion for Peter. I do see that there was a lot of damage and he was struggling. And you know, although I don't understand what made him put a needle in his arm, I do understand. I do feel like I understand that he was in a lot of pain, and I probably wasn't the most compassionate when I was divorcing him or married him because I was frustrated with him and. But, um, you know, I regret that I didn't have the chance to become compassionate, as compassionate as I am toward him now when he was alive. But but it was a good journey for me because I went from feeling angry and and just so frustrated with his choices and what he did to really a place of compassion and
1: understanding for him and, and sadness. Absolutely. And, and what they do is infuriating and they push us away and they, and they lie to us and they hurt our kids. So Mm -hmm. uh, it makes perfect sense to be mad at them. And I think there's a reason why they push us away so they can continue to be active in their addiction. They just don't want to let anybody in. So uh, yes, I I got so close so many times. Like I, I was thinking,
2: I mean, because I would have, I would have gotten him to treatment. There's no question. I would have tried to to help
1: him, but and I, I was so close, and he just wouldn't let me in. He just wouldn't say it. Yeah, you know? I remember. There's a scene in the book where you're rubbing his back, and the law firm is. Uh, he's made a big mistake at work. Yes, we were walking back from my son's band played outside, right? And I and he was so frail and fragile. It was like, I felt bad for him. Yeah. I think you said, Peter, if I had the money that you have, I would go check myself into a clinic and figure out what's wrong with me. Right. And you you know what? Um, You almost had him. Although I have to wonder, and it makes me really mad that his colleagues didn't do anything, Eileen, because he was receiving medical equipment at work uh, so that would be kids um, and he was clearly using at work. He had needle, spent needle tips in his drawer. Okay, so that and in, his, ba- and in his
2: bag. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm not going to waste my time getting or, or our time together getting mad at <laughs> at colleagues because I understand it. I on, didn't see it,
2: but I, of course, we'll never know what they knew and what they didn't. There's a very big uh, motivation at firms like his to not see because you know here you have a partner. Right. that's impaired that's leading cases it, it would not be a good situation for them so i don't know how much of it was motivated by greed like we're we're not going to see this because it will screw things really screw things up and so you know i'm not saying it's it's all that way but uh, you know it was in my best interest not to see it too i needed him to support us i couldn't support our family but I, and i know i was very ignorant and i am assuming that you know most of the people at the firm had never seen this sort of thing or or if they did they didn't recognize it in someone who was outwardly so successful but there was also very little motivation to call people to task i think at law firms you you know the stories of the alcoholic partner who yes. you know he's still the rainmaker so they they just look the other way i think there i think there's a lot of that that still happens
1: i think you're right i think the moral of the story is um don't stay silent Mm -hmm. Right. Even if somebody had come to him and said, Hey, buddy, come on in, had the whole firm do an intervention. So you, you were an ex-wife, you were not living with him. They were, they were more than I did. Right. Every day, or at least, well, I know he was missing in action the last three to six months, but at work, but they should have gotten together as a, a, whole team, all the partners sat them down and said, Hey buddy, we're worried about you. You've, you've lost hair. You've lost weight. You look like you've got AIDS or cancer. Um, you're not here. You're missing an action. Your texts are garbled. Uh, right, clients right. are complaining and you've got medical, uh, equipment arriving to the office. So what we're, you know, and, and what's not going him, on? You know, we want to help on. you. Like, it, it, I right. think
2: he I think he would have reached out maybe if he thought that he wouldn't lose his job. But I think Peter was yes. probably convinced he'd lose his job if he said anything. And I so, don't know that yeah. he would have.
1: I think I think they would have helped him. Yes. But, so maybe yeah. what they to your point, maybe what the firm could do in a case like this in the future, if they have somebody what the, that they're suspicious has a drinking or a drug problem, drug problem. or some kind of an addiction problem, uh you know just sit them down and say listen um we want you to go get some help and here's a contract saying you can go away for up to 3 months and you will have your job no questions asked when you return as long as you continue to be monitored oh that would be yeah i think that i mean yeah i i think you know if you're if you're
2: a really good attorney and you're good at your job and this happens there should be some mechanism where you can say, listen, I'm I'm having some problems. I need some help. I need 30 right. days to, right. to get out of, you know, and right. right. And and I have no doubt that at some firms that happens and people come back at, at least at Peter's point in his life and the way his firm was at that point, he did not
1: feel that option existed for him. Absolutely. It's really sad because I think um, people with addictions are the loneliest people on the planet. Although, you know, yeah, I
2: mean, I, I don't understand it, right, because I, I haven't struggled with an addiction, but right. it must be a lonely place to be, even if you're using with other people. I don't, you know, I was yeah. thinking, well, maybe there's that comfort.
1: I don't know. but And, and they hate themselves. Um, I, I've been sitting for 24 years with people with addictions, and wow. the, the number one uh, biggest feature is is shame. So I Anything. imagine if he was sitting in my office on a clean and sober day, if he had called me and said, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm addicted to tramadol, right. wh- which is an opioid, uh, and I'm addicted to cocaine and I need your help because, and I would say to him, what's the most important thing to you in order of priorities? I wonder, he probably would have said his kids if I would it was, hope so. if I it would was hope. a moment of clarity, but uh, I'll tell you, Eileen, um, if it, if it wasn't say, he said, my business is number one, mm-hmm. um, then, and if, if you were contacting me also, I would have, a, I will actually meet with family members. If somebody has got an active addiction, even if, if they're desperate and I know they're going down and they're like, a, you know, they're, they're just a walking, uh, dead man. Uh, if a family member or an, you know, a, a work colleague calls me, um, and we want to do an intervention. Uh, I will go ahead and do that. And I've actually had one, um, one attorney whose ex-wife came to me and so did one of the partners in the firm. And we actually wrote a letter to the bar and brought him in and did an intervention and said, if you don't go on a plane to treatment tomorrow, you have a choice between Atlanta and Pennsylvania, then we are mailing this to the bar. It's risky, there's always wow. a there's yeah. always a risk, a big risk, right? But anyway, he got on the plane and he's clean and sober now. He's he's got oh. a couple of years. So you figure out where's the leverage. God, you're saving his life, you know. Right. I mean, right. right. But but yeah. that doesn't happen often. I mean, I'm I'm not telling you about all the people that I know who have died from addictions because nobody said anything. No. Or, or because the person didn't have any consequences. Like, what were Peter's consequences? How many DWIs did he have? Driving well impaired. He had a couple of
2: bad accidents, you know. But he had so much money that he, you know, right. like if your car needed ten thousand dollars worth of repairs, he could do that. Right. But it was not a good thing. And also, just to be able to spend that much money on on drugs each month, like it. But I, yeah, I agree. It's it's interesting. You have had a hard
1: job all these years. Um, what you I, do, Patricia, is is hard. It's hard. It's painful. Um, oh yeah but but it's also hopeful because people do get better um and 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 sometimes they don't and sometimes people are too sick and sometimes they die um God. you graduated Eileen from a master's program in social work in the summer yeah. of 2020 um do you plan to practice clinical work and if so in what area well I I went back to school for
2: social work after finding peter dead because I, I I am still a journalist but I felt like I I wanted to be able to help more than i was as a journalist you know people in need things like that and um i went back to school and i graduated in september in january i started february i worked um, up until recently i just moved but i worked for a healthcare company in the bronx and i was working with as a therapist for very low income mostly people of color there who had been having therapy for the first time mm-hmm. and i can tell you there was such an enormous need because of the pandemic I was hired and there were five of us and I left in the end of August and there were 21 of us. Like,
0: oh, so, there, so it was
2: really intense. And I just moved to back to Southern California and um, I, I just actually got a job. So I'll be starting next month in um, an emergency department at a hospital here as a social oh, worker. So I'll get a chance to, but I'd like to work with people that are, that are high need, you know, so I hope so. I'm looking forward to it. It sounds like very meaningful work. It feels like it, it feels like it is and it feels like the right place to be. It's and it gives me interesting things to write about, you know, I it lets me think about what it means to be human in a good way. It's wonderful. Well, let Thank me ask you.
1: you, um how do people get a copy of your book? And I'm going to underline the correct spelling of your name. Eileen is spelled E I L E N E. Right. So they can go to my
2: website, Eileen, E-I-L-E-N-E Zimmerman, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N. So it's EileenZimmerman.com. And on the landing page, there are like six different ways to get the book. If you want to go to independent book publishers or Powell's or bookshop.org, Amazon, it's all there. It's actually, um, it's kind of on sale now as hardcover. I think it was $13. $13. So it's pretty inexpensive. white cover now, and there's also the audiobook and the ebook. So I hope people will buy it and they can contact me through eileenzimmerman.com too and tell me what they think.
1: I think it's wonderful and I wholeheartedly endorse it. Um, Thank you. I have really enjoyed our conversation and I so admire how honest you are and how generous you are with your writing i I, it deeply touched me and i know that it's going to touch anyone who's ever either either had a problem with addiction personally or loved someone with addiction and if you had this is um uh last parting words uh to anyone out there would you would you be talking to children of the person struggling with an addiction would you talk to the uh spouse uh, would you talk to the um, workaholic uh, attorney? With a I think, yeah, I think I would
2: talk to the workaholic attorney's colleagues and yes. say, don't be afraid to pull somebody aside and say, listen, something's going on with you. I don't know what it is, but I'm really, I care about you and I'm concerned and I'm here. Yes. So whenever you're ready to talk about it, I just want you to know it's, I'm here and it's confidential and I want to help. I, I, I hope that more people will do that for their colleagues in the future
1: so that the bottom line, don't stay silent. Don't stay silent. Exactly. Right. Because addiction just thrives in the darkness. Mm-hmm. It sh- certainly does. Wonderful parting words. Well, thank, thank you, you so very much again. And uh, I wish you all the best in your new career. And uh, this is Recovery, The Hero's Journey uh, with Eileen Zimmerman. Thank, thank you, you very you so much. much. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for joining us this week. Recovery, The Hero's Journey, is broadcast every Tuesday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. As you wait for our next program, remember, you are definitely not alone.